0: It has been brought to our attention that depending on the platform that you listen to, you can no longer hear some of our previous episodes.
1: Some of our favorite episodes.
0: Some of the ones where people would reach out and say, hey, listen, I can't believe that you talk to insert whatever name here.
1: And honestly, it makes us a little sad that you can't go back in time and have a listen because the stories were really incredible.
0: We reference a lot of times, oh, we had a chance to talk with so-and-so in the past. And if you can't go back, then it's kind of just, oh. So we wanted to bring some of those Guests, some of those former guests back into the spotlight.
1: We're gonna call it like a, a rerun, I think.
0: A Why Me Project rerun. Do
1: you remember those?
0: I do back in the day, or you used to throw the tape into the VCR and <laughs> oh, we're dating ourselves.
1: We are, but uh, a rerun was the opportunity to rewatch one of your favorite episodes. Now everything's so accessible. Well, we thought it was. No, yeah,
0: exactly. So without further ado...
1: Here's your Why Me Project rerun. The Why Me Project, an exclusive presentation of Faith Strong Today.
0: He's an author. He's informative. He's insightful. He is John Acuff, my friend. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. We like to ask this skill testing question because we never know what the answer is going to be. Who is John and where did you come from?
2: I guess I came from Massachusetts. I grew up there, and I write books and give speeches and raise kids, and I'm married and live in Nashville.
0: Growing up and going to school, and that were you the class clown? What, what kind of kid were you? I would say I was underachieving. Um, I guess I was class
2: clown in that I appreciate laughter. I like making people laugh. I like when people make me laugh. So I certainly value that. It's fairly you know moments of of greatness followed by like long seasons of pretty average. <laughs>
1: I think that's a common story for growing up, eh?
2: I, I think so. I th- if you're honest, I think it is.
1: Yeah.
0: When did faith come into the picture? When did it become kind of your story?
2: Well, my father's a pastor, so I certainly, you know, grew up around it. Grew up in the church, as a lot of people like to say. So I'd say fourth grade is when I was baptized. And then really um, college was was big for me. And then later on in life, when I was... Maybe I was about 30. I was in a men's group in Atlanta that was just awesome. And so that moment during my time frame that I look back on and go, oh, that was, that was special. That was important. That was meaningful.
1: Growing up as a pastor's kid, did you feel any extra pressure to be a certain way?
2: Yeah, I mean, you are. The funny thing about being a pastor's kid is that you're, you're kind of famous. In a weird way, in that everybody knows, like everybody knows who you are. I remember the first time going to college, going to college, and then going to, um like, picking a new church to attend. I was, I was surprised that people at the church weren't interested that I was there because I was just, you know, like growing up, it's like, oh, there's the pastor's kid, and so you kind of, it's a funny sort of fame, and I don't mean that in a bad way or a good way. I think it can be both, but that's a pressure there where like your dad and your mom know things about you because people in the church tell them,
1: Ah, yes. There's eyes everywhere. Exactly. Did you want
0: to follow in uh, your dad's footsteps? Was pastoral where you wanted to go as a career or, or where were you heading down that path?
2: I think it's very natural. Every kid I think sees what their parent does and either goes, I'm curious or I'll never do that. You know, a lot of kids have the exact opposite. They say, I saw my dad working in an office and I don't want to grow up to be like that. I've definitely thought about it, but it was never serious in the sense of, like, I never flirted with seminary. I never flirted with, I'm supposed to plant a church. I would say that where I've used it is, you know, now I speak for a living. And so I learned a lot watching my dad do what he did in the form of sermons, where I, you know, I speak to corporations mostly. I say 99% of the work I do is with, with corporations. So I learned a lot about how to do that. So the functional part of his job, I definitely feel like I continued the spiritual aspect of being in a church has not been where I felt like I was supposed to be.
1: And yet finances is still a huge part about, uh, you know, your faith as well as, you know, being in a church. Well, I mean, for
2: me, I, I don't know. It's so interesting. I would say, and you probably see this, like the position you guys are in gives you unique kind of a unique view on life and that you get to see a lot of different forms of faith and the way people express it. And so I feel like more now than ever, We need people in the marketplace that are crazy about the Lord, have beautiful faith, but aren't traditional ministers, but are amazing accountants who happen to love Jesus and are amazing plumbers. And so I feel like that intersection for me has been where I've gone, okay, this is where I'm supposed to be.
0: So then going into it, like, was it, I want to become an author? I want to be a speaker? Or then what would you have said growing up? I'm John and I want to be blank.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's taken me a long time. I think there's a lot of your listeners that have the similar thing where it's so hard to be self-aware, you know, like we need people in our life that can see who we are and help us see that too. Um, So I knew I liked ideas and I wanted to be around them. So in college, I majored in advertising, you know, a journalism major with a focus on advertising, worked at ad agencies, worked at big companies like Home Depot and Bose and Staples, always in the marketing department. And I loved it. And so I always loved the power of an idea to help somebody. Um, which I think is what my dad does as a pastor when he preaches. Mm. And so I wanted to do that. And really, the, the process over time was I started a blog called Stuff Christians Like that went viral. And I was faithful to that. And it was way bigger than any degree of talent I had. And it kind of grew. And so then I was able to turn that into a book and into some speaking. And it, it kind of grew out of that. But it was, you know, it was not delivered in the sense of I've never been one of these people that said, Ten years ago, I knew this exactly what I this is exactly what I do. I'd say over the years, I've learned and and God's opened my eyes to stuff. But it, it wasn't a ten year plan, and I'm on year seven.
0: Do you think the reason why stuff Christians like is is it because a lot of times people think Christianity is so stuffy, and you kind of put a different spin on things?
2: Oh yeah, I would say there's a couple things that really helps me. One. I mean, I'm not cocky enough to think that it would be as big as it was if I launched it now. The reality is, there's a lot of funny Christians doing great stuff online right now. But you know what? When I started it in 2008, 10 years ago, I was, like, fairly rare. Like, there, I wasn't the first by any means. I think there's been funny Christians since, like, Jesus. But I think that at the time, I really benefited from the vacuum of faith voices that were writing funny, honest stuff. And I was able to go in and say, well, this is how I like to communicate. Like, let me try this. That was huge for me.
0: Do you think we've gotten better over time? <laughs> yeah, I think we have. I mean, I
2: think we, one, we need to, there's a couple ways to look at it. One, it's a powerful communication tool. You, you're both communicators. You know that, like, you know that it's not just for a laugh. You can communicate truth through your humor. It's really powerful. Two, I always tell people, if you can't laugh at yourself, other people take the opportunity. So I like that folks like the Babylon Bee will say, hey, this thing we're doing is ridiculous. Like, why did we do that? That's the craziest. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I think we've gotten better. I still think, you know, the thing I always say is like in the prodigal son story, the older brother doesn't come into the picture until the music and laughter is so loud that he can't ignore it. And I don't think we've got our party loud enough yet where people
0: have to ask questions. So then how does somebody get hooked up then with Dave Ramsey? I tell people all the
2: time, like, you you know, you might, as a Christian, you might not use the word luck. You might say blessing. Like, I don't believe in coincidences, but I definitely believe in things outside of my control. Every Wednesday they do a, a staff devotional, whole staff. So I think it's 600, 700 people. Now. It's a very big company. And they're, you know, they're, the way they're run is smart in that they're able to say to their staff members, Hey, if you see somebody you like, let us know. We'll talk to him. We'll talk to her. And so, a guy, like a regular employee, not an executive, just a regular employee, said, "Hey, I really like this guy's blog. I wonder if he speaks." And so, my second time ever really doing a speech was at Dave Ramsey's headquarters. And so, it went well. And they said, "Hey, we want to hire you for this position." And I said, "Yeah, you know, that's not really a position I'm looking for. No thanks." Spoke again the second year. Went well. Spoke again a third year. And that's when Dave said, "Hey, we want to we want to show you how to amplify what you're doing." And for me. It was like being in a greenhouse. It was just this fire hose learning experience that I that I benefited from tremendously.
1: It's interesting cause I don't think a lot of people I know, if someone from Dave Ramsey's team came up to them saying, "Hey, come join us," they would say no. What was it about that timing for you that just didn't seem right? They
2: were offering me a similar position to one I already had, and so I didn't want to get like pigeonholed into that. And you know, I think that God was kind of giving me a moment of clarity there, and. And it also meant moving my family. So I wasn't going to move my family for a slightly better opportunity. Um, I had young kids. We lived near my wife's parents. And so it just, you know, it was kind of like, here's a slightly better opportunity that forces you to move. And that just wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, And so fortunately, you know, saying no a few times turned into a much better yes.
0: Do you have a hate on for credit cards and debt now?
2: (laughs) No, it's funny. Like I, you know, running my own business, I see it differently. I think, you know, they're really smart in that they have to hold the line and say they understand their brand is based on black and white. They can't say, if you travel a lot, it's okay to have a Delta card because that makes the whole thing messy. Where I do get really frustrated by is debt that prevents you from living the life you're supposed to live. I've started working with an organization called bright peak around the topic of money and marriage. Cause it's so powerful the collision of those two things. And so an example of debt that I can't stand is when I meet a college student that says I have $150,000 in debt and because of my debt, I can't take the job I want. And I'll say, what do you mean? They say, well, I'm in social justice and there's this mission in Venezuela I want to work at, but they won't pay me enough. It won't cover my debt. So like the cycle that breaks my heart is the idea of I took a loan to get to the degree to get a dream job. And now I can't take the dream job because of the loan. Like, that's where I think, so, I mean, I don't, you know, um, we're, we've paid off our house. We, we don't have any debt. So I believe, I believe in that. Um, If people ask me, you know, what's something that really helped your marriage going through total money makeover really helped our marriage. And so I, you know, I'm excited about all that stuff. I just, I now don't, there's some of the stuff that I don't, um, I don't demonize credit cards maybe the way I used to in that I know too many small businesses that go, yeah, I have a credit card, and I didn't automatically overnight buy a speedboat. Like, <laughs> I handled it responsibly, and I go, oh, okay, I guess that's possible. Like, good for you, you know? Like, that part of me is kind of like, I've cooled on that, but, man, I the stuff they teach about that I think is really valuable.
0: It's interesting, though, because you're talking about uh, having this dream job and that you get frustrated because now students can't, or coming out of college can't, you know, have that dream job, or at least that's how they feel. Then, to me, if you're working for Dave Ramsey, your career seems to be going great. Dream job. How tough is it then to then walk away from that?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a big decision, but it wasn't a fast decision. It wasn't a. I mean, it was a deliberate decision. There were so many conversations, and so for me, I wanted to do my own career. You know, they had certain plans for me that we you know kind of evolved and. As they did, and as I kind of evolved what I wanted to do, we realized, well, wow, these are very different things. You know, I wanna, I wanna do this, you know, this other thing. And part of it too is that we're very similar. So it's, it's very fair for me to say, I wanna grow my brand inside your company's resources. Like eventually, that's just, I don't know. Eventually, I had an issue with that um, where I wanted to be the one saying, okay, I'm putting the money up, I'm investing it, I'm taking the risk, I'm trying to do this thing. And I'm either going to sink or or sail on my own, so let me you know let me try what that looks like. So it was challenging in that it was the it was the best fame I had. It was you know it was great exposure. There was great things there. There were things to learn, and you'll always look back and go, I would have tweaked this or done this a little differently. But I, I, I haven't regretted decision one time, and I guess it's almost five years now. So I feel really good about that.
1: That's awesome. And of course, you were saying that you're working with um, Bright Peak Peaks, And you've just launched. The money list, and I think what stood out the most for me kind of in some of your conversations about this was both me and Johnny are married, and quite often we hear about finance as being that big thing that can split a couple, but you go on to say it's also one of those greatest things that can unite a couple, and that's not something that gets talked about a lot. What are some of those things that bring a couple together?
2: Yeah, I just felt like, if you said to me, what you know, how do you think about money differently, like, I love the fun side of it. I think, you know, the problem with, at least in America, I can't speak to Canada, In America, when you say, name the five words that you think of when you think of goal or like getting your money in shape, people go sacrifice, hustle, grind, perseverance, willpower. They never say joy, laughter, happiness, fulfillment. And so I've really seen in my own life the fun of doing things together money-wise. Like the problem with money is that it becomes kind of your like your idol if you're not careful, where I'd see couples... And the wife would say, I have to call my husband about a $10 purchase. And if you want to ruin a marriage, make your husband the warden of your wallet, mm. where you have to call him to kind of bow down for permission to spend $10. Like, that's a really dangerous place to have your marriage, where the husband's the bad cop, the wife is the good cop, and she just wants to spend money And the husband. So I'd much rather go in and go, let's get it on the table. Let's talk honestly about it. Let's buy something fun. People are mistaken when they think, Taking control of your money means like you drive a terrible car forever, and you you know you cut your own hair. I love like doing being successful at business because then I get to do fun things. Like one of the things we did this Christmas that I wrote about, and man, people got mad at me, which is so funny. I mean, but welcome to the internet. My father-in-law taught me that he used to go to Waffle House on Christmas Eve and give, and Waffle House is this little diner in America, and he'd give everybody working there a hundred dollar tip. Like it'd be the biggest tip they got all year. It would make them feel so special on Christmas Eve. So we did that. And like, that's fun. If you ask me what's the mistake I've made about money, I didn't believe giving was as fun, fun as it really is. Mm. And part of that is I think we misapply our giving. Like a classic example is Christians will go, I got to serve, so I have to go build a house for this, these people. And you want to go, do you build stuff at home? Are you even remotely good at that? Do you enjoy it? And we think, no, but that's what I have to do. Or I'd rather you go, I'm amazing, At writing, well, go help people write their resumes. Go help, you know, convicts who are just getting out of jail rebuild their resumes. Like, go apply your skill that God gave you. Like, I shouldn't have a hammer in my hand because I'm terrible at that. So I love the idea of how do I serve in a fun way? How do I give in a fun way? How do I like? I you know, Christians, at least Christians in the South, have a really terrible relationship with money, where they'll say things like this to me, like. I had a Christian musician from a famous band say, if you buy a $75,000 Suburban, people say, good for you, that's a family car. If you buy a $75,000 BMW, they say, Jesus needed that money. (laughs) The Christians have, we have a real secret toxic relationship with what we believe is sinful, which is hilarious because then you go, where is it sinful, your house? Like, is it a screen porch that Jesus is like, now I'm at, but he's okay with like a new kitchen? (laughs) like.'" If you like, there's all these broken rules we bring the money. And those are the things I love to admit and kind of bust up.
0: Yeah, speaking of Christmas though, by the way, just on a side note, the Santa that your wife got was uh, incredible.
2: Yeah. It's gigantic. It's been put away for the, it made it through the winter it only one tear when she was out of town, which is pretty much my fault. But yeah, <laughs> it's, it's been fun. And so that's, you know, I've tweeted a few times. Bright peak is part of Thrive. Thrive It's this multi-billion dollar company. They've been around for a hundred years. So they basically said to me, we dare you to think of huge, amazing, fun things to do, and then we'll do them together. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I love I love getting to try stuff like that. We're like, we've, we're doing some live events, and they're like, who would you love to do an event with? And I said the person's name, they're like, well, let's go get them. And so I just think that money's a lot more fun than we give ourselves permission
0: let me ask you this now it's it's a new year and everybody talks about no new year new you and i'm going to be completely different it's this whole transition period as an author and i mean you you've written now um quitter start do over and finish where should somebody start when it comes to reading the things that you've written
2: for me i would like finish is the best thing i've ever written and there's a few reasons for that i think it's the funniest but the second thing is it's the first book where i said I'm going to commission a research study with a Ph.D. to have hard science behind these ideas. And, you know, we studied nearly 900 people for six months so that I can say, hey, here's this thing. And it's not just because it worked in my life. I hope it works in yours. Here's this thing that statistically we've seen happen over and over again. We think it'll help you. So that's the book for me. And then the other thing is. If you were thinking, like, if you were in a miserable job, you absolutely hated, I think Quitter is an encouraging book, because it tells my story of, we have this idea of, like, I'm just going to quit tomorrow, and I'm just going to go for it. We say the phrase, go for it, all the time. And Christians are the worst, because we say, I'm going to step out in faith, which usually means with no plan. We think, like, God hates plans, or that having a plan is somehow living in a land of doubt. And we're like, I'll just jump off this cliff with Jesus. <laughs> um so I think Quitter is a is a encouraging boot in the sense that it says, hey, you know, it's an encouraging book because it says, here's how I did it, here's how you can do it, here's a different way. You don't have to do the Instagram, just go for it. There's a process. Like, so that's what I'd say to somebody. somebody said to me, Hey, got this goal I want to do, I'm saying read, finish. If they said I'm in this dead-end job that's killing me, I'd say, oh, you got to check out uh, Quitter or Do-Over. do Over's the same thing. If you said you're going through a career transition, Do-Over all day. I'm actually going to talk to the NFL Players Association in two weeks to talk to their players because they teach players Do-Over. Because you talk about a career transition, you spent 25 years of your life to get to the NFL, and it's a, three, it's a three-year-long career. That's a really scary thing. you got to start over at age 26.
0: I mean, you've had a chance to speak to thousands of people. By the end of when you're done and you get off a of stage, there could be people coming up to you, or there's people sending you emails or messages. Hey, John, what you said has changed me. How do you react to somebody who's come up, to, who you literally might have changed their life by what you had said?
2: So here's where you learn humility. People will come up to you, and and I guarantee this has happened to you on the radio as well, because it's it's one of the gifts of being a, a performer or a public speaker, whatever. So what happens is I'll say something. The person sitting in the audience will come up to you and go, hey, that thing you said really changed my life. And I go, which thing? And then they'll say something I didn't really say, but it was what they needed to hear. So I'm not arrogant enough as a public speaker to go, when I speak, it's my words. Like everyone who sits in the audience is filtering it with their life, their experience, their connection to the Holy Spirit, what they need to hear. So I try not to get too caught up in that. I mean, the things that, the things that are helpful to me are, I ask people, I said, I want to do a Finnish Hall of Fame. So I said, send me. If you read my book finish, and it helped you finish something, send it to me. And so I'm looking right now at a a bookshelf full of books that people said I'm going to actually finish. And part of the reason, and I got products sent to me. People say I lost 40 pounds. Like that's the stuff that's more, the result is more exciting to me because according to the New York Times, 81% of Americans want to write a book and less than 1% do. And so we should all be crushed by the fact that a quarter billion people don't do the thing they think they should do. And so when somebody does that, that's what gets me excited. Like, I don't, you know, I'm honored when somebody said this really helped me. I'm even more excited, though, when they say this is how I used it,
0: you know? Having traveled and being away from home, has it become difficult? No, I mean, my wife
2: taught me something brilliant. You know, I would say half the ideas I say are just me, like, ripping her off. But (laughs) my wife one day, when I started to do this, my wife said, hey, When you go on a trip, don't give your shame or guilt about traveling to the kids. And I was like, what do you mean? And she said, kids will respond to the emotion we enter into the situation. She said, so what you're doing is when you leave, you're like, I'm so sorry. I have to leave. I'll miss you so much. And she said, the kids don't even know to be sad. You're asking them to be sad. You're asking them to hold your guilt. She said, when you leave, it's a celebration. You got another job. Like when we go to Disney, we need to say we're at Disney because remember, daddy did this. Or like. He's at the pool all summer because he works in the fall and the spring. And so we've really been positive about it. And I love it. I mean I talked to I've got a 14 year old asked her friend the other day, because I'm friends with her dad. I said, Hey, where's your dad this week? She's like, I don't know. I was like, when's he get home? She's like, I don't know. Like the kid isn't on pins and needles like, oh my gosh, and my dad dust in the wind. And the other <laughs> thing is that I travel less than people think. Um, the problem is when I travel, I tweet. So I'm like, I love Orlando, look at Fort Lauderdale, Minneapolis. I just don't do that at home. Like I've been at home today. I haven't been like I'm in Nashville doing Nashville things. And so I feel very fortunate in that I control it. You know, I get to say yes or no. So if somebody says, we want you to do this four day trip to Singapore, I go, Nope. Like it's not worth it. Like, no, you know, I'm honored, but I'm not going to do that. Um, but I also get to say, I would say 90% of my trips are one night trips. So uh, I'll leave this Sunday. Um, at you know five o'clock p.m. and I'll be home the next day at five p.m. because I'll mm. speak in Memphis and I'll drive and it'll be great. Um, I the people I have compassion for. I mean, you talk about you've been deployed for six months and you're in Afghanistan, or or a lighter form of that, you get a consulting gig and Monday through Friday for six months you have to go to Cleveland. Like I don't, you know, I'm not really in a position to feel bad about my travel compared to the, you know, the people that really travel.
1: I like that you have the opportunity also to say no. and It's interesting because I've been talking a lot with my circle of friends about trying to be able to say that word no to the things that come up in your life. For you, the act of saying no to opportunities, was that a difficult adjustment to make?
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's it's always an adjustment. It's it's kind of, you know, there's a, there's a balancing act. But I kind of look at it this way where I have a sense of the things I'm supposed to do and the things I'm not supposed to do. Um, so I kind of know who my audience is and who I'm trying to serve. Um, you know, I know, okay, these are the corporate clients I'm trying to talk to. You know, I'm going to FedEx and then I'm going to this other company. So I have a good sense of that. When you when you don't know who you're trying to serve, that's when it's really challenging because you'll just say yes. And then you learn things. You learn things like the client, the client who pays you the least demands the most. They're the worst clients. Like it's always that way. So now I know, okay, like if somebody says, we want you to work for us, but we want to pay you 90% less. I, I think that's adorable. No, like, that's not how, like, <laughs> I don't want to do that. Um, and the other thing is that I'm 42. So I've been professionally writing for 20 years. So I would say you have varying degrees of no. Like, I don't get to say no as much as a guy who's 62. But you better believe I get to say no more than a guy who's 22. Mm-hmm. Like, if you're an intern at an ad agency right now, you don't have a lot of no's. But if you've, if you've worked for 20 years and been deliberate, you have a few more. And so I try to be, you know, and then I always remember the phrase I always kind of say is if, if you tell somebody no and they react in anger, they just confirmed you're supposed to say no. Hmm. So if I say no to an opportunity and they try to shame me, like somebody tries to ask me to endorse their book and I say no and they try to make me feel bad, then thank goodness I didn't endorse your book. Like that was the wrong thing.
1: Well, this is the Why Me Project, and so we always like to find out um, our guests' Why Me moments. And for us, it can be one of those Why Me moments where life wasn't going well, kind of that place where you're wondering why is this happening to me. But also, we have those Why Me moments where we're just kind of humbled that God would have chosen us to be his mouthpiece in such a vocation. So is there a particular Why Me moment that you can share looking back over your life?
2: Yeah, I mean, speaking at Catalyst in Atlanta for the first time on the, the main stage, which is, I think... 10,000, 12,000 people. That definitely felt like a why me moment. And part of it was I had, you know, lived in Atlanta and wanted to do that for so long. So that felt like that definitely felt like a special moment. As far as like a negative why me, just feeling stuck in my job. It was just a conveyor belt of where like I had to leave who I was out in the parking lot and then go to work and then come back out. It was like just this cycle. That was a frustrating moment. It wasn't frustrating like I lost somebody close to me or I was in a bad car crash. So I don't, you know, I'm not trying to say that's a huge widening moment, but it was definitely a I felt stuck moment.
0: Follow that man on social media at John, F or you could jump online to uh, acuff.me. John, we appreciate you taking a minute out of uh, your busy schedule to uh, hang with us today. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to an old episode, a past guest of our Why Me Project rerun.
1: Something that we're starting now because there are so many episodes that we really did love, and they kind of disappeared from the digital world.
0: And speaking of digital world, I, I did a little recon. There are at least nine different platforms in which you can listen to the Why Me Project podcast. Okay. So there's no excuses, but I mean, some of the main ones like Apple Podcast and or Spotify.
1: And you could always head to our social media accounts to stay up to date as each and every Wednesday. We have a brand new episode for Why Project. And you can also let us know if there's someone that you would like to hear on a future episode.
0: At Why Me Project on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, WhyMeProject at Outlook.com. And of course, as always, FaithStrongToday.com. Huh?